0: This message is from Icon, from community, Icon church. community Church. Icon is a church located in Metro Atlanta and Metro Grace, community, and renewal. For more information, please visit our website at iconcommunitychurch.org, at iconcommunitychurch.org. or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, a Twitter. Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Icon Family we are all at some level experiencing discomfort in these days. And when we are experiencing discomfort, that can be very jarring for us. It can make us feel anxious, and it can also sometimes make us see things in ourselves that we wish were not present. Some areas of discomfort are deeper. They're a little bit more serious. Some of us are experiencing an extreme lack of stability Based, to, based on financial loss or a lack of income or a lack of contact with people. But some ways that we are feeling uncomfortable right now are a little less serious than that. And if anything, they are making our American privilege show a little bit. My stockpile of food is a little bit lower than it normally is or my Amazon package took four days instead of the normal two, or I just can't go wherever I want, whenever I want. But whatever it is, when we are uncomfortable, our default in being human is to try to work ourselves back into a space of feeling comfortable and at ease. And really in order to thrive and flourish, you need a level of comfort related to stability. But also in order to grow and to push forward, we do also need to be experiencing discomfort. So how genius of God, that he sends us a savior who perfectly bears forth comfort and discomfort, both to us and for us. If you have a Jesus who only ever makes you feel comfortable, then you are missing parts of Jesus. And if you have a Jesus who is only ever making you feel uncomfortable, you are then missing parts of Jesus. And we see in today's text in John 8, a Jesus who is acting as a comforter, but also a Jesus who is bringing a holy discomfort to people just with his presence. So as we go to John 8, you may notice in your Bibles, a notation that this particular part of the passage doesn't appear in some of the earliest manuscripts. So we need to remember that as with a lot of early historical record, much of scripture was passed down orally first. And that seems something that for us would make it lose authenticity. But that's just because we operate in such a different way than these cultures did. If you are a group of people where orally telling stories in order to keep your history and records is just a part of your rhythms and it's a skill, it's entirely plausible that these things are passed on in a very authentic way. So in this particular case, in John 8 what is likely happening is this was part of the oral tradition. There are probably a lot of stories that aren't included in the Gospels that were part of the oral tradition. And there was something about this one in particular where it was still included in the canon early on. This particular story can be traced back to the year 100. So with that, we are going to jump in. And if you would read with me just the first two verses, John 8, verses 2 and 3. At dawn, he went to the temple again, and all the people were coming to him. He sat down and began to teach them. Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, making her stand in the center. So for a little context here, Pastor Darrell preached through chapter seven for us, and we have had the religious leaders debating with Jesus, and they're wrestling with who Jesus is claiming to be and what the implications of that are. And as a result of their frustrations, they have been trying to trap him all throughout chapter seven. After all of this intellectual and spiritual debate in chapter seven, it says that they retire to their homes. But Jesus, however, who's homeless, retires to the Mount of Olives, probably with his disciples and other followers. So after in chapter seven, Jesus doing battle for the hearts and the minds of people, he goes to this place that is often used as a space for him to restore and to rest and to seek God. And after having that time, he gets up early the next morning and goes back to the temple right back to a place where he is always facing division and opposition, but also right back to a place where he knows that there are people who need him, people who are drawn to him, probably for reasons that they don't yet understand. And as Jesus is seated and teaching, the religious leaders show up, the ones who have tried and failed previously to trap him. And it can't be too hard for us to imagine how frustrating that this was for them. We ourselves are often trying to outmaneuver who Jesus is and what he requires of us. Pastor Darrell has been continually leaning into this in the text throughout John our struggle with reconciling who Jesus is, who he claims to be, and what that means for us in terms of how we live our lives. Like the religious leaders, we ourselves are often trying to push back when surrender to Jesus means we have to give something up, especially when this relates to our autonomy. If Jesus is pushing against me deciding how I want to live, how I want to treat people, what I want to do with my money, what plans I want to make— Jesus is sometimes going to frustrate us. He is really good at exposing the areas in our lives where we are still functioning as our own Lord. He may even be working on us in this area of autonomy and making our own decisions when a pandemic takes place, for example. Wherever there are parts of Jesus right now that you are trying to ignore or downplay or gloss over, there's a really good chance that you have an idol there, somehow probably related to control. And where you think that you are living in a level of freedom because you are making your own decisions, you are actually living in bondage. And the only way to get free is to go through Jesus. So where you're feeling that pushback, do the work. Do the work where Jesus is making you feel a little less in control right now. Do the work where Jesus is making you feel uncomfortable or uneasy or exposed. Do the work where he's annoying you a little bit. Because the spirit here may be even just trying to repair your view of him and your view of what it is to live for him. And being willing to go there and not push back against it is a place where you can find freedom. But here, the religious leaders are not up for that challenge. They are not up for surrendering to the ways that Jesus has been pushing back against them. So the leaders show up, those with the power, those who have much to lose if Jesus is right. And they find him, which can't possibly be that difficult because once again, he is surrounded by a crowd of people, probably a little salt in their wounded egos. And they come for him again. But this time they change their tactic because the spiritual and the intellectual debate from the days before did not prove fruitful. So this time they bring with them a woman that is accused of committing a sexual sin. They are playing extra dirty by using someone with less perceived value in that society and someone who has less power. They call her guilty, they heap shame upon her, and they drag her out in front of this crowd. They are using her as an object lesson in their attempt to maintain the power in the upper hand. When power is threatened, those with less power are almost always used and abused. The poor or those deemed inferior are often forced to serve the ends of those in power when their perceived supremacy and superiority is threatened. And those claiming the moral and the religious high ground are not exempt from doing this. In fact, they, or we, can sometimes be the most savvy at doing this. The history we have of the church, the majority culture church in our country, proves that point. When you are unwilling to surrender and release to God and obey who Jesus says you are supposed to be because it's going to cost you something, someone is always paying for that. And here in this situation, it is this woman. Verse four says, "'Teacher,' they said to him, "'This woman was caught in the act of committing adultery. In the law, of Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? They asked this to trap him in order that they might have evidence to accuse him. Jesus stooped down and started writing on the ground with his finger. So let's consider for a moment what this woman is experiencing. What has happened to her to bring her to this point? It is key that there is no man present here right now. So there are a few possibilities of what maybe happened to bring her to this point. She may have not been a willing participant in the act that took place, in which case she still is having the guilt and the shame heaped upon her. It is not a new thing that those who have been victimized are the ones who then end up taking a lot of the blame. It's possible that this was just a rumor or it was hearsay, as often all it takes is for a woman to be perceived impure or to have done something wrong and the fault and the consequences fall on her. But let's say maybe this was a consensual adulterous relationship. In Leviticus 20.10, biblical law required, if that was the case, that both partners would then be punished. The Jewish law that this was based on actually demanded evidence for this. And the reason being that there were many times when men in that culture, when they would want to divorce their wives, instead of going through the process of divorcing her, they would have her set up and they would have false witnesses to accuse her of adultery so they could bypass the divorce. So no matter what the scenario is, because she is alone She's the victim of injustice. So the leaders here are going a little rogue in in trying to prove a point. They are selectively choosing what they want from God's law in order to justify their own actions, as we are prone to do. They do want to put her to death, but more than that, they are wanting to trap Jesus, and she is just a pawn She is just a victim in the midst of their schemes. The issue for Jesus here is if he says to stone her, he is technically stepping out of line. He doesn't have the status or the position in order to actually make the call. Technically, the Jewish leaders should not even be able to make this call. If you remember, they have to go to the Romans in order to get Jesus executed. However, if Jesus says to not stone her, they can easily accuse him of being lax in terms of the law, God's law. But little do they realize at this point how outmatched that they are. They're playing checkers. Jesus is playing chess. Like they do not even realize that the one that they are intending to condemn her is actually her savior. They really don't even see her. She's just someone that they're using, yet they have unknowingly brought her to the one who sees her and knows her and loves her more fully than anyone else ever can. And so they pose this impossible question and Jesus stoops down, noting that he has been seated through this whole exchange. I just love this image of Jesus seated Teaching And these men who have been up all night scheming and hatching this plan make this grand entrance, drag this woman in, thrust her into the center, and create this just scene in front of this whole crowd. And throughout this whole thing, Jesus just stays seated, unmoved. And they pose this question, this trap. He doesn't even speak. He stoops down, starts writing with his finger in the dirt. So why, why does he do this? So there are different theories about this posture change. Some people say that it was for him to act as if he hadn't even heard the question. I am not even going to dignify your trap by responding right away, almost like a Jesus power play. One idea is that a judge would draft a verdict in writing. So maybe Jesus is writing out his verdict. One idea is that he was writing the names of other accusers in that group who had perhaps had their own affairs. A popular one is that maybe he was writing out what he was about to say next. By far, one of the most frustrating things in the story is that we don't know exactly what he wrote. Maybe he wrote checkmate in Hebrew, which would be delightful, but Jesus What we do know, what we do see, is he takes this dramatic pause. He doesn't respond right away, he takes his time. Imagine being in this crowd. You know, you rush there early in the morning to get there. You've been hearing him, you've been hearing about him and you you settle in and this whole scene takes place. You witness this woman being dragged out and you hear this question being posed and you are well aware of the potential dangers that this woman and Jesus are facing based on how they answer. Imagine how she is feeling. Her very life is in the balance right now as she is a pawn in a game that she really should not even be a part of. Imagine the trauma and the shame and the fear that she has endured up to this point, being captured and dragged around by these men, being in the center of a mob of people, being told she is condemned, and now waiting for the next answer to be her death sentence. And then Jesus, who's been writing with his finger in the dirt, stands up for the first time in this whole scene. I almost imagine it being like this slow motion, deliberate move of authority. Like there is finality in his answer before he even speaks. And what he answers is just another Jesus mic drop moment that probably makes them rock back on their heels. Verse 7 When they persisted in questioning him, he stood up and said to them, The one without sin among you should be the first to throw a stone at her. Then he stooped down again and continued writing on the ground. So, the one who is guiltless of ever breaking one of God's laws, you go first to one who has a completely clear conscience when it comes to sin, you can start. Condemnation and this judgment here really only belongs to God alone. He is the only one who is holy and pure and righteous and just enough to make this kind of a call. Technically, They should not even be able to, they are not holy or just or righteous enough to do so. So in a way, Jesus is saying, who do you think you are? Do you think you're God? And with that, standing just for this one sentence, he stoops down again and starts tracing his finger in the dirt. Jesus doesn't need to wait for a response to this question. He doesn't need to stare them down until they grow uneasy. He doesn't need to watch them slink away. He knows them better than they even know themselves. And those who have been hell-bent on exposing someone that they were victimizing are suddenly themselves exposed. Those who have refused to fully see someone as a fellow image bearer are themselves suddenly so fully seen that they're not going to be able to stand before him. Our sins against others in the name of righteousness cannot handle being in the presence of Jesus. Dodging the convicting presence of Jesus, it only harms you and it will always harm other people as well. Conviction like conviction here, conviction of sin, that is a gift of grace. And if you don't see your discomfort about having your sin pinpointed as a gift of grace and something that you're willing to go to and lean into, you are never going to be free. To ignore discomfort like this means you are not accepting who Jesus is fully. It is his kindness that leads us to repentance. But here, this is not viewed as a kindness, the conviction and the discomfort proves too much. Verse nine says, when they heard this, they left one by one, starting with the older men. Only he was left with the woman in the center. When Jesus stood up, he said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, Lord, she answered. Neither do I condemn you, said Jesus. Go, and from now on, do not sin anymore. Jesus knows the depth of the guilt of those who were before him. And he just, in this beautiful moment, pulled back the curtain in front of everyone You tried to condemn some with lower status, and I'm going to show you your guilt. You tried to shame one with no rights, and I exposed your shame. Jesus here, and as he does, he humbles us when our postures are arrogant or proud. And here we also see that he raises up those who are humiliated and those who are victimized. That's where his heart is sitting in this story for still as they leave in the center is this woman. Imagine her standing there hearing this exchange, probably bracing herself for the stones to start coming, terrified, waiting and still nothing. And finally, chancing a look up and seeing this mob of accusers has thinned out and then seeing one leave and then another and then another. And Jesus just writing with his finger in the dirt. Once he knows they are all gone, Jesus looks up, stands up again, imagine him dusting off his fingers and walking over to her and with such tenderness and care. Because remember, he loves her and knows her better than anyone else. She just doesn't know that yet. He says, woman, where are they? No one's still standing here to condemn you. Where did those who guilted and shamed and used you for their own agenda and desires, where did they go? I love that he engages with her here, and I love that he doesn't say, "So are you guilty?" Did you do it?" Jesus is the only perfect and right judge here, and he knows her. He knows what she's done. He knows what has been done to her. And in such kindness, he doesn't ask her to sit in this shame even more. He sees what's been done, and he knows the posture of her heart. And somehow in knowing that, what he says to her meets her where she needs to be met. Jesus meets us in those spaces, knowing what has been done to us, knowing what we need. He is asking here, someone who has been rendered voiceless, to speak with him. Her accusers and those in power probably never even gave her a chance to speak. But he says, I want to hear you. Tell me what is your fate? What has happened to those who condemned you and judged you? Who's left? No one's left, Lord. No one. They're gone." The unjust accusations are gone as she looks into the face of the one who gave her freedom when she was captured, who gave her dignity and value when she was deemed worthless, someone who just gave her life when death was approaching. Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, do not sin anymore. Jesus says, I don't sentence you to death either. I don't condemn you. I don't only see guilt and shame. I don't see you as worthless. I don't see you as broken, but I see you fully. I see you as loved and valued and whole. And because I see that, because Jesus sees that, it means everything. In fact, Jesus seeing you fully gives you all you need. He can pass judgment, but here he matches what was supposed to be condemnation with grace, as he does. And he encourages her, go and sin no more. In essence, you have received forgiveness and love and grace from me fully in this moment. And that is your catalyst to then be able to go and bear forth forgiveness and love and grace. He has given her what she needs in order to now turn her life in a different direction. He himself in his own body and his presence gives her what she needs in order to live a life of fruitfulness and repentance. He's given her what she needs to not live for self, but for him, to live along a path of life and not death. Jesus changes lives radically. And in how he does so, He enables us to live as a changed people. He is a source of all we need. He is about healing people and making them whole again, not just from what they have done, but from what has been done to them. And this is something that should bring us so much comfort. But this is also something that should give us a holy discomfort. This should bring us holy discomfort as we honestly examine ourselves. This should make us squirm a little bit because we are prone to using people to meet our own ends. In our current state, this current climate that we are living in, where we are experiencing a brand new level of scarcity, if we can call it that before Americans, a level of scarcity, where are you making decisions in reaction to that? And who are your decisions affecting down the line? Who is the most vulnerable right now? And are your decisions contributing to their struggle or their lack? Where are you not seeing people right now? Whether individuals or people groups, where are you passing people over? Maybe because you are so obsessively focused just in your own world, or maybe there's something about them that makes you feel guilty or uneasy, or maybe even a little angry. If you belong to God, you don't have the option to let people slip through right now. You don't have the option to use people and ignore injustice. You don't have the option to gloss over a lack of care and concern for others as you are trying to preserve yourself. You don't have the option to condemn someone with a finality that only belongs to God even if that is just something you are harboring in your own heart. If you are in his image and you belong to Jesus, you have signed up to be invested in the flourishing of others. And a pandemic doesn't put that on hold. A pandemic does mean that we are supposed to be actively seeking God and actively engaged with our community in any way we can and actively listening to the Holy Spirit so that we can know what does this look like for me with what today brings and who I can influence? What does it mean for me to not overlook people with what I can touch? A pandemic, if anything, for those of us in Christ, we should in a way be the most prepared for this because of a certainty we have. You were purchased by sacrificial blood to do this life in a different way, one that is not about the elevation and preservation of you, one that is not about running over other people to get what you want. Jesus's priority is not to train you to be all about you. We are to be in this, trying to walk in his footsteps, a rhythm of laying down our lives for one another, of having humility, but with boldness, of having grace, but with backbone. So pay attention to where Jesus right now is making you uncomfortable, because that may be conviction of where you are not aligning yourself with who he has claimed to be and what he offers to help you live as a changed person. His conviction comes from love. It is love and his conviction is a catalyst for restoration. To stiff arm conviction, to not want it, is the same as saying, I don't want to live as a healed person, and I don't want to help bring healing to others. Jesus is in the business of making people whole, healing them again. Not just from what we have done, but from what has been done against us. So this should also be something that brings comfort. This should bring comfort where you are unseen or used or abused or taken advantage of. Jesus sees you in that and is with you there. Jesus being with you is Jesus being for you. Our mediator who has struggled and suffered and who can fully identify with you in all things, having that should bring a level of comfort. Jesus is where you are the most safe with your struggles, your emotions, and your fears right now. There is no softer or safer place to land with those things than him. And he's not irritated when you bring that to him. He's not annoyed with you. He's not thinking, I really just wish you would trust me more. He wants all your stuff cast all of your anxieties and cares upon him, for he cares for you. He wants you. And this doesn't mean that you are suddenly not affected by the troubles or the trials, but this should help to at least shift our heart, our mind, our perspective, and our resolve in the midst of those trials. Jesus himself didn't promise you won't have trouble. In fact, he said, you will. In this world, you will have trouble. But in the next breath, take heart, but take heart for I have overcome the world. Friends, our comfort in us is being loved and seen and known by one who has already said it is finished. By one in the midst of today who has already seated himself at the right hand of God in a movement of authority. This is something that is sure for us to hang on to when everything is shifting and changing around us. There should be no greater comfort for us in these days than that Jesus is with us and in all things to come. And if you are his, you have to hold on to that hope. If you are his, take heart. And this is where community and church and prioritizing Being with us engaged in this space as much as possible is so important because we need one another to help us revisit this truth over and over again. We need one another to be speaking the truth of who God is with us and for us as a comforter when some of us are having extra tough days. I need someone to stand in the gap for me. We take turns here. So hang on to your community in this and keep proclaiming truth over and over again to yourself and to one another as a prayer and a praise. And we should do this until we have no breath left. Hold on to hope, take courage again because our comforter is here in today and he's going to be in tomorrow and the day after that and the day after that. He is and will always be. The word of our God says, do not fear for I am with you. Do not be afraid, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will hold on to you with my righteous right hand. Amen. Please pray with me. Father, we are thankful that you are a God who is present with us in all of these things. Father, forgive us for ways that we forget that. Forgive us for the ways that we take that for granted. Father, we know that this does not mean that things will not get more difficult for us. But Father, we thank you that we have someone who fully identifies with our fears and struggles in the midst of this reality right now, and that that someone is present with us. So I pray for me, I pray for our church and our community, that we would be deriving a comfort and strength from knowing you are present, you are here, you see us fully, you love us fully, that you will never leave us in the midst of these things. Help us to remember to proclaim this as truth over one another, and also give our hearts a softness to receiving this truth when spoken over us by those in our community. Father, help us to trust you more. Help us to hang on to you in the midst of this. Help us to even somehow in the darkest of these days that we are sometimes experiencing, to still be able to say, that you are good and faithful. We love you, and in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Icon Community Church. Please visit us online at iconcommunitychurch.org or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.